Everything was good, and then it wasn't. Everything was perfect, and then it was broken. Everything was peaceful, and then there was conflict. And the goodness, and the perfection, and the shalom that was God's creation was completely shattered when God's creation, in fact, rebelled against him and chose another way. I use the word rebelled, and it's a strong word, but when we sin, we're essentially saying, God, I know better than you. I'm smarter than you. Your way is wrong. My way is right. And, it, and as he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one true God, that act, that mindset, that action is, in fact, rebellion against the one true God. Genesis chapter 3 tells the story of humanity's first rebellion against God, and with it, it shows the fallout for our lives, both individually and for our communities. It teaches us what happens when we sin, what happens when we sin personally, and really how that impacts the community around us. And so Genesis 3, it's a tough chapter. It's full of hard truths, and really, it's, it's full of, of bad news, just to be honest. There's a lot of bad news and hard truths in that text. But make no mistake, in that text, there are verses of promise and hope and restoration and redemption. They, they speak to the truth that there will be ultimate victory of good over evil, of light over darkness, of holiness over sinfulness. So even this morning, as we go through Genesis 3, and we see some hard truths there, and we see kind of some of the bad news that are there, we don't need to be far from the truth that Jesus will ultimately redeem individual sins and will restore his communities as he is the one who's making a way for the salvation of our souls and he is the one who is ushering in the kingdom of God. We can't be far from that truth. We must hold it, tight, hold it tight and hold it close to us. So go to Genesis chapter three. We're gonna look at the story of the fall. Genesis chapter three is where we're gonna begin. If I hadn't had a chance to meet yet, my name's David. I'm the teaching pastor here. Thank you so much for being here, being a part of our community. And if you're an Ole Miss fan, I'm praying for you. Uh, last night was rough. Uh, you might've thought my opener was talking about the, uh, the football game. Everything was good and then it wasn't. <laughs> and so, uh, but no, we're here, we're praying for you. And, uh, and I, hope, I hope you can uh, recover. Hey, uh, this week is, is week two of our Gospel Project uh, series. And so uh, you've, you've seen some of, the, some of the information, some of the curriculum in the back corner. This is what our community groups are going through uh, week in, week out. And so our sermons are, are kind of starting the conversation for what's happening in our community groups. Uh, we'll, we'll ask some questions in, in, in the sermon that, that really you'll kind of explore as a group. Or sometimes our, our Sunday morning sermons will just kind of be additional insight or additional conversation if you will, on top of the topic. And that's kind of more where this morning or how this morning will fit into that. So let me say this. If you're not plugged into a community group, I highly encourage it. Uh, you heard uh, Weeks talk about it earlier. Uh, go to gcjxn.info and you can sign up right now in the middle of the sermon. So I can't stress that enough because we want to have a time both where we're, we're here together in kind of this larger setting, but we want to be able to have time where you can process this with one another. Last week, we began this series really by focusing on, on, on kind of two truths that fed into each other. One, God has made a way for us to know him. He made a way for us to know him through sending us his son, Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. So he made a way for us to know God's, uh, the one who is eternal, the one who is infinite, who was in eternity past, present, and future. He made a way for us to know him in a personal way in which we can follow him. And with that, we also learned that he, uh, that he made us uh, to bear out his image as well. That when he created mankind, he created us to bear his image. And that speaks to our purpose, that he wants us to bear out his image in the way that we 
we live, the way that we relate to those around us. And so we kind of put both of those together and saw when we trust in Jesus, when we follow him, that helps us know God and grow in our knowledge of God and helps us uh, to better reflect his image to the world around us. But we also had a time of confession last week. And we talked about how that's hard. That's hard to bear the image of God to the world around us. It's hard and really we don't do it well. Uh, for one thing, although we are created in his image, um, if we uh, were not able to bear out that image the way that God desires, if we refuse to know him, if we refuse to trust in him, if we refuse to, to begin that relationship with him. And so uh, we can kind of uh, have a challenge there even in beginning. Once more, when we do trust in him, when we do respond to Christ, we can be so tempted to then rebel against our design, rebel against our created purpose, and in so doing, we fail to bear out the image of God. So what happens when that happens? What do we do? And what happens when we sin and we fail to bear the image of God? Genesis 3 starts that answer. So let's pick up the text. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the, trees, uh, from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit, uh, eat the fruit from that tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So Genesis 3, we have the story of the fall. We have the story of when, when the, the serpent tempts Eve, when Satan tempts Eve to lead her to rebel against God. And then Adam follows suit and, and follows in that rebellion. And we see that at the start of this, we see Satan's first tactic. The first thing, that the first opening salvo, if you will, against Eve, against Adam, is to create doubt around the word of God. Hey, did God really say that? Is that something he really expects of you? Does he really command you to do that? He's just just asking a few questions, just to begin to get them to doubt the word of God. But he doesn't stop there, right? Satan continues the lie, continues the deception. And, and, and you know, he hears these responses, yes, God told us not to, but then he says, no, you'll, you'll, you'll not die, lie. You know, that's a, that's a lie, they, they will. And then he kind of gives this, um, this, this, uh, this statement that's, uh, I don't even want to call it a half-truth because it's, it's just deception through and through. But he says, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. God knows good and evil, but he knows it in a way to where he's not evil himself. He, he knows what sin is, but he's never committed sin. He's, he's holy and righteous. When Adam and Eve commit this act and rebel, they're going to know good and evil, but they're going to know it from a personal experience. They're going to know it from their own experience with sin, and they couldn't be any more different from God in that moment, in that manner. And so Satan is just continuing this deception over Eve uh, and Eve, and ultimately towards Adam, doubting the word of God um, and, and, and creating this false picture. Once more, when he gives this notion of uh, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil, he creates a doubt for them that, that maybe God's holding out on them. 
that hey, God doesn't really want you to do this because then you'll be kind of like him. So God's holding out on him. And if God's holding out on you, then maybe he's not good. Then maybe he's not worthy of our trust. And so you can see this progression of lies and deceit that he's just giving towards, towards Adam and Eve, doubting the word of God, doubting the goodness of God. And then that unbelief leads Eve. And really, I would say it leads us because when we follow this similar pattern, giving in to sin or, or, or entertaining the, the desire to sin, it leads us to place ourselves above the creator. It leads us to creation to place ourselves above the creator. And when that inverse happens, when, when that happens, we're, we're thinking we're wiser, we're smarter, we're more knowledgeable than he is. And, and when that re- inverse happens, biblically, that's idolatry. We've placed ourselves above him. We've placed our desire, our wants, our whims, you know, whatever we're chasing, we're worshiping that. We want that more than God, more than him, more than his commands. And, and so biblically, that's idolatry. And then you, you can see it just, just happening. It's a train track. You get on and it goes this way. The false agency that we feel with our idolatrous selves, I'm more powerful with God in this moment, it leads us to then take the act, to take the action. It's expressed there uh, where, where we feel smarter, wiser, more knowledgeable. And again, it's full-blown rebellion against God. When Eve eats the fruit, it's rebellion. When Adam eats the fruit, it's rebellion. When we sin, it's rebellion. And then we experience the effects of that sin. For Adam and Eve, they felt shame immediately. They, they try to sow the fig leaves to, to pretend as if nothing had happened. But everything had changed. The goodness, the perfection The shalom that was God's original creation in the garden completely shattered when God's creation chose to rebel against him. And instantly we see how much has changed because God continues and and gives curses, uh, pronounces the curses over over the serpent, over Adam and over Eve. And this is where we come in, verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return." As I said earlier, Genesis 3 has a lot of, of bad news, right? A lot of, of hard truths, and we hear that here. There's these, these curses given to the serpent, given to Eve, and given to Adam. But I do believe that in the, in the curse towards, to the serpent, there is a promise of hope. Uh, and it's, it's at the end of verse 15. Uh, the enmity between the serpent's offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is widely regarded as one of the first promises that we have of Christ, uh, that, that he will be the one to ultimately defeat Satan, even though Satan will bruise him. And we see that bruising in and on the cross. But we see Christ's ultimate victory uh, with the empty tomb, right? With the, uh, with the empty tomb, it shows that the ultimate victory goes to Christ and Christ alone. So here in the midst of, of all three of these curses, there is a promise that we can't lose sight of. Because really, the, the fallout from their sin is intense. 
And it's so far-reaching. It's so far-reaching. First and foremost, we see that there's death and separation from God. There's death and, and, and separation. A separation from the perfect union and relationship that they had been experiencing with God in the garden. You know, they were able to walk in the coolness of the morning with God in the garden. Like they had that close of a bond with him. From now on, from now on, there's separation. Although God's going to pursue them and make himself known to his creation, but it will not be in that unveiled experience that Adam and Eve had, had enjoyed prior to the fall. And so humanity separated from God. We see also uh, that, the, that God had told them when this happens, you will die. Scripture also lets us know the wages of our sin is death. And there's, there's a punishment, there's a penalty for this rebellion. God cannot both, be both holy and just and righteous by turning his back on this. And so there, there must be uh, that punishment meted out. And so we, we see that here. The consequence of sin is now something is going to have to die. And so we see right off the bat separation from God and death as a result of sin. Those are deeply personal. Those are, you know, we, we feel those as individuals. But also in these curses, I, I want to draw our attention to the communal impact of sin as well. Because this sin impacts both them as individuals and also their society. Hang with me on this because it, it, it can get a little muddy. But like w- with, with Eve, right, the specific curse to her, there's, there's pain in childbirth. Certainly that's, you know, her as an individual. Uh, but then also there's, there's that, that enmity between her and her husband. There's that, um, there's that uh, power, there's, there's brokenness in that relational conflict. So it's not just something that affects the individual Eve. It also affects those who are around her and the power structures around her. With Adam, when he's uh, going to work the land now, right? That work is going to get hard. And, and so, uh, and what's he doing? He's farming. And hang with me on this. The farm uh, was the agricultural system of, of these first civilizations. So with Adam's sin, now economic systems, economic structures have been cursed. They're now broken. They're not functioning as they were originally intended. And so what you begin to see is one sin uh, of these individuals is affecting the many. The actions of one are affecting the many. And as a result, there's a communal and societal implications for this sin. Tracking with me on this. Right, this is, this is a, a little bit, maybe, I don't want to say a departure, but maybe this isn't something we speak much of, even when, we're, when we, where we talk about the fall. There's the individual aspect, the individual repercussions, the individual experience with it, but that also has impacts for the community. And it, it doesn't just, it's not just in Genesis 3, you can see it throughout all of the text. Um, through, throughout the entire Old Testament, you can see whenever God goes to fault Israel for their sin, oftentimes he's speaking to them collectively as a nation. He's finding fault with their hard-heartedness towards him. He's finding fault with with their refusal to obey his word, with their refusal to care for those in need. He's finding fault with their desire to use their military and economic power over those who are weaker than them. And so he's finding fault with the collective. He's finding fault with the community, with the society and their expression of the sinfulness. Now, was everybody in Israel guilty of all those sins? No, no. There were some in Israel who were God-fearing, yet God holds them accountable. 
accountable as a community for the sins of, of, of even just some of those in their midst. And, and uh, God holds them accountable for the sins of them collective as a whole. He also, uh, it, there are also occasions throughout the Old Testament where God holds the entire nation of Israel accountable for the actions of just a few. Uh, Joshua, uh, Joshua chapter 7 tells the story of Achan and his sin and how he led just a few others to sin as well. And that led to the entire army of Israel suffering a brutal defeat. So not only was Achan held responsible for his actions, but Israel was held accountable as well. And this isn't just an Old Testament thing. This also happens in, in the New Testament. In Revelation 2 through 3, Jesus has messages for the church, letters for seven churches. And in his words to these churches, you can see again the call for collective and communal responsibility to one another and towards the commands of God. Some of the churches he holds responsible for the sins of just some in their midst because the church was to help them all see their sin, turn from the error of their ways and, 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 and turn from that, turn from that sin because their sin wasn't just affecting themselves as individuals, but it was damaging the witness and the power and the ministry of the church. Now, some of you might be like, where are we going, David? I thought we were in Genesis 3 and sin and curse. Now, where are we? The reason that I'm hammering home this point of of individual sin and communal sin, the reason that I'm focusing so much in on this is because I believe we are prone to have a strong view of one and a muted view of the other, when in reality, we need to hold both in the proper tension. I, I think so often we can be prone to have a strong view of one and a muted view of the other when we need to hold both of them in the proper tension because Jesus has and will rescue us from them, rescue us really from both. And to not see that, to not see the individual and the communal aspect of sin, to not see that is to have a truncated view of the gospel and only appreciating half the rescue and half the redemption that Christ has won on our behalf. For instance, hang with me. I'm going to give some, some examples of what I'm talking about. For instance, if you, believe, um, if you believe that one's most pressing need, all right, that one's most pressing need is repentance from individual sin, you will rightly know and see how Jesus is the one through whom we have forgiveness of sin and the salvation for the soul. Right, true, amen. That's the hope of the gospel. We preach that every Sunday at Grace City. We're not going to back off of that. We believe that is definitely a pressing need of us all to, to know that. God desires that all would believe in him so that none would perish. So we're going to preach the gospel and we're not going to back off of it. We're going to preach the individual need for the gospel. We're not going to back off of it one bit. But when that becomes maybe the sole focus or we don't give weight or don't give any concern to the collective weight of individual sins, then we begin to ignore communal sin. We begin to ignore societal sin. And when we ignore that, we abdicate our personal responsibility to address it. And so what happens, like, I, I think that's one of the reasons why, I mean, you can look across the history of the Deep South, right? That's one of the reasons why there's, there's you know, strong, successful evangelistic crusades in the 50s, 60s, and 70s where people are coming to know Christ, know the hope of the gospel, yet Jim Crow has a stranglehold across those same communities. Because, there, again, there's this, this notion, let's just preach Jesus and people be convicted of their sin, and then the, the ripple effect will then transform communities. And again, I'll say right and amen to that. I, I like, I like, yes, we're going to do that. That's part of the plan. That's part of the play. That we're going to do that. We're going to preach Jesus. We want people to come to know Christ, have their lives changed, and yes, that'll transform communities. But again, one also has to see and confess and repent and work to right those communal expressions of sins that have plagued us since the garden. 
Because when there are sins and power dynamics and economic structures and classism and sexism and and racism, it's marring the image of God that we see in our neighbors and in our brothers and sisters. These two are sins that we are to confess, that we are to address, because God has called his people throughout the Old and the New Testament to address these things. Okay, so... Maybe an overly simplistic, you can maybe poke some holes in this, but I'm just trying to help us all fully kind of appreciate where I'm going for. An overly simplistic expression of this tension might be saying, I just want to focus on loving God, and and I'm not really going to focus so much on loving others. I'm just going to focus on on loving God rather than loving uh, our neighbor. When in reality, you know, Scripture tells us, like, that's basically impossible, because if you say you love God, yet you fail to love your brother, you're lying to yourself, right? That's 1 John 4. So there's texts that speak to not being able to do that. But I do believe that's how some people approach faith. I'm just going to focus, I'm going to put all my focus on loving God, and there's, there's no focus on loving the neighbor. When, if there is a focus in loving one's neighbor alongside a focus for loving God, it's going to strengthen the, 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 the bond, tie, association with, advocacy for those in our community, because Christ has commanded us to love him and to love our neighbor. It's two that we have to hold together. On the flip side, all right, on, on, on the flip side, I think you can have such a strong pull towards communal sin, towards societal sin, and say, no, okay, this is our most pressing. And we have to, we have to you know, address systems of injustice and brokenness. One can have such a strong pull towards that that you perhaps overlook how your depravity is contributing to the whole. And when, when, when that happens... When, when that happens, it can lead to a, either uh, a holier-than-thou type of mentality or a victim type of mentality that either refuses to see the sin in their own life or believes that sin is only there because of the failings of others. And, and so maybe this one would be an overly simplistic expression of this would be, okay, I just want to focus on, on, on loving others and, and because, you know, that's, you know, my faith and I just want to focus on loving others rather than on, on growing in our love for God because that would be the overly simplistic expression of it because when we say, God, I want, I want to grow in my love for you as I grow in my love for, for my neighbors, as I grow in my love for you, God, your Holy Spirit's going to help me see my sin. It's going to help me see my brokenness and turn from it and, and, and grow in your holiness, grow in your righteousness because, again, Christ is commanded us to do both, to love God and to love our neighbor. This is the image that Christ gives to his people when he walks this earth and serves this earth, right? And that's the image that we are to reflect to the world around us. It's living a life that that turns from sin, pursues the holiness and the righteousness of God, loves and serves others, showing them God's kindness and God's mercy in our relationships. That's the image we were created to bear. And when we sin individually or communally as a people of God, we tarnish damage and destroy the image that we were created to bear. But the hope of Christ, and and if I lost you any in the past five or ten minutes, come back in on this, all right? The hope of Christ is that he mends the pieces of our broken, mirrored souls and enables us to bear out his image when he reconciles us to himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 21 is one of the most hope-filled passages of Scripture to me. We read this so much at Grace City because it just speaks to so much of what Christ has done, what he's done in our life, and what he's invited us into. Hear these words. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. 
We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so so when we place our faith in Christ, we're a new creation. Our sins are not counted against us anymore. They're given to him. And we see in this text, the great exchange happens, right? His righteousness is given to us. And so what you can see in this text, it's a reversal of the curses of Genesis 3. Because in the same way that that Adam sinned, Eve sinned, and, and all creation fell as a result, now because of Christ's sinless life, because of his sacrificial death, when we place our faith in him and trust and, say, and stop the rebellion and say, yes, I want your life to be my life. I want your death to be my death. Then we see our sinfulness is given to him. His righteousness is given to us. And now the punishment that was due our sins, death, is now meted out. It's, it's now happened through Christ. And once more, when we place our faith in him, uh, God's word promises the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in hearts and lives of, of his believers. So we're no longer separated from God. And so you see, the death has happened through Christ and we've been given life. We're no longer separated from God. We're made, we're, we're, he dwells with us and we will dwell with him. And so it's this ministry of reconciliation that Christ has done in the hearts and lives of, of his people. And now he's giving that ministry to us that we are to help others know this truth, help others know and see how Jesus redeems them from their sin, makes them new and enables them to bear out the image of God. Yes, we break and we destroy the image of God when we sin, but Christ has made a way for that image to be restored, for that image to be redeemed. And again, nothing to do with us, everything to do with who Christ is and what he's done and the work that he has done on our behalf when we trust in him. But this text also proclaims that we are ambassadors of Christ that we are ambassadors of Christ. And an ambassador is one who represents a kingdom or a nation. And, and as, you know, if we're an ambassador of Christ and we know that, okay, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God and I'm a representative of the kingdom of God. And that should just open up all sorts of other questions. But it opens up all sorts of other promises as well, right? Because what is God's kingdom? God's kingdom is where the sovereign reign of God is experienced and shown. You see a powerful expression of God's kingdom with the empty tomb. We've already talked about it because at the empty tomb, it shows the ultimate defeat of darkness and violence and oppression and persecution. I think you see God's kingdom whenever you see people um, confessing of their sin, trusting in him, being redeemed and adopted into the family of God, adopted and given a place in the kingdom of God. Because in the kingdom of God, you see both the tax collector and the prostitute being welcomed in and get welcomed in and given a place. So with that, you see the rich and the corrupt and the poor and the marginalized both having a place in God's kingdom through their faith and trust in Christ. The kingdom of God is a place of refuge for the sinner who has trusted in Christ and is now a redeemed saint, knowing that they are partnering in the work that Jesus is doing. It is the place where the curse of sin is completely restored, completely atoned for, and the perfection and the goodness and the shalom of God reigns supreme. It's society and community and relational ties that bonds, God, that bonds God's people together, all of that existing in perfect harmony as the full expression of God's kingdom. Because in God's kingdom, both individual sin and community brokenness is restored, made new, and set to right. But remember, 
What did Jesus say about his kingdom? He, he, he said that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that starts small. It's the smallest of seeds in the garden, but it grows to be the largest tree in the garden. And so with that, we know that the kingdom of God is both here now and it is coming in all of its fullness. And so the kingdom of God is here now when we trust in Christ and put our faith in him. The kingdom of God is here now when people see that, hey, we're, we're called to be on mission. We're gonna, we're gonna join Christ as he's pushing back against the darkness. And so we're gonna join him in these acts and we're gonna anticipate the full reversal of them all. We're gonna anticipate one day when there is no more brokenness, no more violence, no more hatred, because we know that God is coming to bring and to unveil his kingdom. And so... My hope this morning, if I could give the whole sermon in a paragraph, and maybe this is just what I should have done 20 minutes ago, maybe 25. When we speak of the gospel, when we speak of the gospel, and the hope that this good news brings to all, let's celebrate every aspect of it, because it is all so desperately needed. for so, many, for so long in my life, I would have just thought this individual aspect is, a, is the only need that we need. And I would have lost the communal side of it. And then there's different times where I think this communal side of it is maybe all that we need and I lose sight of the individual. We must pull both of these together to see the full work that Christ is doing. And so we have to ask the hard questions. We have to ask the hard questions all the way around. God, help me to see how I've rebelled against you. Help me to see this, my sin and unbelief. God, help me um, to trust in your redemptive work and the, the work that Jesus has done in addressing the communal and societal sins. God, help me to trust in that work that you've done. And then once more, God, as an ambassador of your kingdom, God, are there ways that I can join with you in addressing the communal and societal sins that are in this world that have plagued this world since the fall and, da- and, and that have plagued this world since the fall and damaged this world? Because when we take those actions, when we engage in them, we're anticipating, again, the full reversal and the triumph of evil with God's coming kingdom. It's a way that we reject a truncated view of the gospel. It's a way that we appreciate the full rescue and redemption that Christ has accomplished because Jesus redeems, the, redeems an individual from their sins and he is restoring the community as he is making a way for the salvation of our soul and for establishing the perfect hope of his kingdom. So may we never forget, may we never forget the impact of, our, of individual and communal sins, but may we never Never, never lose faith, trust, and anticipation of both the individual uh, redemption and the communal hope of the gospel. That's a way that we can join Christ in the redemptive work that he is doing.